All right. Well, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the drop at DFT. You are in the middle of our Umbrella Academy season, opening the umbrella. And today I am especially excited to talk with the VFX editorial team because this is the first time on the drop that we have gotten to talk about this under highlighted group of heroes that are on pretty much every show at this point, but on a show like the Umbrella Academy, VFX editorial carries a lot of weight. God bless you, sirs. Welcome to the drop. Tom Damari, Joe Suzuki, and Joshua Peffley. Thanks, Nancy. I'm so glad you guys are here. So do me and our audience a little bit of a favor here. Um, and each of you represents a different part of VFX editorial that I really wanted to talk about and highlight for folks who don't quite know what that means. A lot of folks know what VFX is. A lot of folks know what editorial is. And then when it comes to VFX editorial, don't know that they know what that means. And then also the fact that there's a VFX editor for the show, a VFX editor on the vendor side, like us here at DFT, and then Joe Suzuki, who was lovingly poached from us by Tom, being the assistant VFX editor, um, has a unique perspective because he was also, fun fact, previs editor for the first few episodes of season three of the Umbrella Academy. So Tom, if you would be so kind as to give us your description of what a VFX editor does, I'd be so happy. It depends on the show, but on this show, um, it's working with the editors. I think primarily we work with, work with and for the editors. We also work with the visual effects uh, supervisor and his team, and we work directly with the producers um, on occasion. We'll get an idea, they'll say, hey, we want to do something. Sometimes they do that in the production level, and then we get stills or something to reference, and we try to make whatever we can. We steal it off the internet, we do whatever we can, and make it sort of tell the story the way they want to tell it. And then we build temps. The editor's cut, our goal was always to have all of the shots done by the time the editor's cut or the director's cut was finished so that the director can tell his story the way he wants to tell it. And that goes to the producers and then they will change it and tell the story they want to tell. But giving them a place to start, is, it helps them generate their own ideas. Sometimes they don't have anything for you. They have nothing. They give you, um, here's the action and here's the reaction of the actors. Here's what, and here's a plate and, and we want something back there and we don't know what it is yet. Um, and then we get to go and be a little creative with it. And from, from that point, we then go to all the way through the studios. We take our notes, we do a visual effects spot with the, with the producers and the visual effects supervisor. And um, then we break up the shots for the vendors and then we hand those to the VFX editor on the other side. So far as when it, it's, you're in that kind of back and forth so far as helping them discern what more they might want there. When you said that's when we get a chance to get a little bit creative. Can you explain what that might mean? There are times 
we will hear things like don't match Tom's temp. We got a completely different idea. And then sometimes it's just do Tom's temp. And, and what it, it's basically saying is we've got a little bit of leeway into what we're building and what we're doing because nobody has it in concrete yet. It's, it's kind of like a first, first pass of, of ideas. And so, and it's like, I'm trying to, I try to match their ideas best, but I also worked with the same producer for five years. So I kind of know what road he wants to go on most of the time. Um, and uh, there are times when uh, they have problems in production and, and Steve Blackman, our executive producer will go, hey, Tom, come in here. Can you look at this and tell me what you think? And um, this is fairly rare. I don't get that on all shows. Some shows I'm just a pair of hands and I organize things. Um, and I do temps based off of what's already been shot. And other times it's more creative. Um, and Steve's one of those guys who is looking for the best idea in the room. And so um, we all kind of try to pitch ideas as we're looking at problems. Sometimes it wasn't shot correctly. How do we fix that? Um, this is really hideous looking. Is there a way to fix that? And can we hide it before we send it to the studio? So you have a lot going on in that room, both I'm sure in what is available, what could be, and then I'm sure cost comes into the room at some point, how it could be masked or tricked or something of that nature. Yeah, I, I, I always defer the second Steve goes, do you think this, how much do you think this will cost? I just go, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I love Everett. Uh, and uh, he can come in and he can give you, you know, closer, but um, really, uh, for us, it was our VFX producer who comes in and he goes, hey, that's going to cost this. And then we send it out to the vendors and they'll either be close to that number or they'll be far away from that number. And then we have to figure out, how can we actually do it? Yeah, we love Everett. He was, um, obviously he was on the South by Southwest panel and then he joined us for a separate uh, episode of The Drop just to talk about VFX on season three. And also, I will never forget how touching it was to have him and Philip Hoffman come visit DFT in large part to talk to the VFX team. I think, Joe, you were there. He brought everybody into this conference room and just said, you guys are absolutely a part of the Umbrella Academy and there's no way that we could do what we do without you. And he really means it. And it is so fun to just watch him light up when he talks about uh, work and, and doing everything with this show and overall. Um, Joe, let me segue in over to you then, sir. How do you support this insane amount of work that happens in VFX editorial? Well, it, um, it, varies a lot day to day. Um, it is not a predictable job, <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and kind of like a VFX editor, uh, it, it seems that VFX assistants also, um, the roles vary based on the needs of the show and based on the VFX editor. But um, the, one of my, the big things is just kind of managing the massive amounts of data that, you know, come in with a show like that. So 
when I first started, I was just um, feeding our, our awesome FileMaker database created by Tom um, with all of the uh, dailies metadata so that when it came time to turn things over, everybody would have all the right information. Um, and then it's just kind of keeping, keeping things uh, fluid and, and moving. And sometimes that meant doing temps, uh, sometimes that meant taking notes, um, and then sometimes that meant creating different uh, workflows or new uh, things inside of FileMaker that we didn't know would, we'd need, but we need now. Um, so it's just constantly kind of seeing what is needed at the time, um, not being too precious about any one workflow. Uh, tell me, Mr. Peffley, how do you do it? Sure. So um, someone like Joe sends us a turnover and uh, we typically process it and take all of the number of shots. We're not working on a full episode necessarily. Sometimes different episodes or different shows will have a bigger chunk of the effect shots that we work on um, and we'll receive the plates um, that are like chopped up. And so plates are just like cut up uh, dailies that are have no VFX on it. And then we'll get also the temps that Tom was talking about um, as a reference for our artists. And my job is essentially organizing and giving the artist that is actually going to do the final work, um, whatever's necessary um, for them to do it, any information that I can pass along. Um, and then when they're done with their work, I'll uh, quality check it and um, talk to our post supervisor, um, Dylan Chizinski, uh, on, on his input. And then once that's approved, we send it back to, um, to Umbrella. So, uh, you're referencing Dylan Chizinski, who has been with, uh, Digital Film Tree for 20 years. How much fun is that to, uh, have to give or receive notes to Dylan? Oh, it's great. I, uh, you know, coming in, I, I'm always curious of like his input. I think he sees a lot more of coming from a VFX side, just what goes into a shot that he can pick up very quickly what um, is wrong or what the artist is doing to achieve that work. So he can back and like engineer galaxy brain an idea um, where I just see like, oh, these there's like dead pixels here or something's glitching so i i'm more of like the technical mind of like is a spec correct or is is things um looking correct where hill his creative brain in vfx is ridiculous and remind me did joe train you first mr peffley yeah i was gonna say it's a little bit of like a padawan to master and then master to Grandmaster, it's it's kind of nice. We have three generations right here. It's cool. <laughs> well, let me ask really quick because I think um, for those of us who have enjoyed books like The Checklist Manifesto, How to Get Things Right, um, I talk about that book ad nauseum. Joe knows this. Even Mr. Peffley might know this at this point. But um, FileMaker, uh, so you guys use that as opposed to like a shot grid or F-Track then, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people use uh, Excel 
They use Google Docs. Assistants use all kinds of stuff to track this. Um, but the automation that you can build with FileMaker, you could feed Shotgun, which is what Joe did most of the time when we do turnovers. He would prep everything and uh, give it to uh, Christopher, our, our VFX manager. It is such a complex beauty of a system, but absolutely it takes a beautiful mind like yours to then create something like that. We, we've tried Shotgun, we've tried F-Track, we certainly still leverage Google Docs, et cetera. But uh, yeah, we are, we are a house that values and appreciates FileMaker and would like to get there ourselves one day. <laughs> well, it's um, every, show, every show needs a different FileMaker. It's odd. I mean, every time you use it, the, you have to change it for the way you get notes or who's sending submissions. Or, and with Joe's help, we actually did a lot of uh, automation that we hadn't had when I went from a previous version of the database to totally creating it from scratch on another show um, in the middle of season two and three. Um, and uh, uh, there's a, a third person who helped build the database, which is uh, Jim Thompson. And he's a, a, another visual effects editor um, who I've worked with. Um, but to be fair to Joe, Joe, when Joe came in, as a you know, as an assistant, and I didn't know Joe very well. I talked to him a handful of times for a couple of hours, and I, I the opportunity came up for me to put my money where my mouth was, and I asked Joe to come on. And Joe like was so impressive with his skills. I couldn't just have him doing the mechanical part of being a, a visual effects assistant. I I pushed him more towards the editor side because it's the more, the more creative side. Um, and, and that's a little different than most VFX assistants get. It's usually like, can you do a TV comp? Yeah, I can do a TV comp. I can do a this comp, I can do a that comp. And then they can track information. And there are so many assistants who don't know how to use FileMaker. Um, so then you're training them and you're trying to get work done at the same time. And Joe, you know, was writing code pretty quick when you said can you do a tv comp so you are you guys doing a, a little bit of vfx on your side then in editorial not finished stuff yeah so i pretty much stick in the avid there are times i'll go to after effects um but i've spent so much time doing the avid stuff that i'm better at the avid and getting it to manipulate the stuff i want the way i want it to um and so when you have 350 visual effects and you essentially have a week and change to get those put together, you know, that's the difference. Let's dig into actually season three of Umbrella because so I binged it over the last few nights and there's just so much like there are moments when I feel like there are a ton of shots and then I feel like there are moments when like did the camera even move but so many shots in here. Um, I mean, walk me through even that opening fight scene and Joe, I'll start with you because you were there with Andreo and Aceto Chavez, who is our lead game engine previs producer and just watching that come together in previs, but then finally seeing it on screen. And also just, you know, we do spoilers here at the, at the drop, but 
I did not see the footloose sequence coming. Did not in any way see that one coming. <laughs> I literally thought that we were in a like a clue situation. And I was like, did everybody get like different openings? What is happening here? This is. They opened really, really strong with a, they just, they just went for it. Um, but I thought it was, I thought it was a really cool opening. And it, you're right. It was, I, I had a really interesting experience being able to be part of the previs and kind of have my own idea of how I thought everything would fit together and then um, get to see it as it was put together. Um, uh, and then kind of, uh, you know, see the final VFX come in as well. And by the time I got to, um, when I jumped on the show, Tom attempted pretty much all of episode one. Um, so I didn't, I didn't have a lot of interaction with that, but um, yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of the full uh, genesis of concept to, you know, storyboards and then previs um, all the way to the final VFX. So that was tell that me was, how that was different because you said it. Uh, you thought you had a good idea going in after having experienced it through previs. How did that change then once you got there? I think uh, just logistically, some of the things had to change on set. Um, we didn't previs every single section, um, so there were there were some new things that were added that I didn't see before. Um, it, yeah, just just the general changes between, and it happened. You know, it happens from script to production to edit. It's just things change. Um, it wasn't dramatic. I mean, there are some shots from pre previs that are pretty much exactly <laughs> the, the same. Like you see it before, and you you is like, okay, that that's that's what Jeremy, you know, that's what Jeremy whipped it. Um, but it was it was a really it was a really cool experience to be able to to watch it kind of unfold and then live a life on its own. So what did Christopher look like in these plates? <laughs> Tom, you said you were you were on, well, obviously you were on the first one. What did that even look like when you're dealing with that? With with uh, Christopher, we had elements that they shot. There were, there was, Christopher is a completely practical cube with lights. And um, uh, there's a visual effects or prop house called uh, the Thingery and they built Christopher and they put him on a stick and they had a Christopher on a stick that was actual size. And so you got kind of a reference scale with that. And I would, they cut, they shot it against different colors, like mostly blue and green. Um, so I could pull, if they, if they went with the blue, I could go with the green background or the black background and I could key it out. So I don't lose all of Christopher. And then we just, chase that Christopher around, you know, all over the set, um, kind of where we thought he was supposed to be. And when we talked about the sequence and whatever was in the, uh, the previous is what we tried to match. And then once they finished the physical 3D version of him for season three, that's what we shot. That's what they, they then did a, a LIDAR scan and sent it all back to the visual effects houses going, this is what we're doing. And so they were having to match the interior colors, the density of the object and having that reference was probably awesome. I mean, 
reaction shot for our editor here. I did not know that there was a LIDAR scan of Christopher because I know we had a LIDAR scan of the Academy, but holy macaroni, I don't know if we have the LIDAR scan of Christopher. I mean, one of the cool things about Umbrella was that we had acts, I mean, they LIDAR scanned like anything that had to do with VFX. So if we needed 3D props, it was kind of a, a, a Slack message away. So, and one of the things Tom didn't say was he had uh, a 3D scan, like a low poly scan of Christopher. And he had a whole library of um, 3D animations that he did that we would use when we needed a 3D Christopher instead of the prop. So it was, when we were temping, it was both the practical stuff and then some of his uh, 3D animations that we would use as, as necessary. We also had an entire library of birds. <laughs> Falcon Master Damari created a whole bunch of uh, uh, birds, CG birds uh, that we would just use uh, whenever Faye needed to do that. So that was that was very very fun. We also had uh, all of our characters are scanned, so I had I had OBJs of um, all of them, so they are they're grayscale, but. I could bend them, I could move their arms. I had some limited use. I used Poser because it's simple. Um, there are better products out there, I'm sure, um, but it, it works for what I have to do. I'm not gonna do a finished product out of it. Well, especially with Ben, I mean, like I'm watching your screensaver behind you and I just think that's the perfect reference to Ben with yeah. the tentacles. Did you do anything to, you know, kind of work with that, I mean, obviously yeah, that's it, all massive. In in episode one, I had an octopus that was a something I got off the internet as an object, and then I manipulated it, and it just took a tremendous amount of time to wrangle that and deal with. You know, every joint is movable, and it becomes a bigger deal. And we did it, I think, all the way up to episode seven. And then we were buried with turnovers, but with Joe around, we got everything temped out. The big changes that I remember from the, the previous was that they wanted to make it a little shorter and they wanted to pull stuff up. It wasn't, I mean, they shot it and the plates and the tracking and the cameras and everything did everything I think that they wanted to do in previous. Mr. Peffley, how confused are you working with all of this with no sound? Like every time I walk in your bay and because you guys don't oh. listen, you don't have right. audio files. Yeah, sorry. No, I don't mean right now. I mean, no, I was like, right now, I hear you fine. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I kind of play a guessing game on like what is actually going on. And, you know, I give kudos to everyone uh, doing the storytelling because, you know, you pick up on a lot of, of cues. I mean, fight sequences, you know, they're fighting. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit in the dark and especially getting to watch like episode one and two, um, I just watched last night and, uh, just picking up on a lot more than what was actually like, you know, shown in VFX. It's cool. It's really cool. Don't, don't we turn over references? So sound? there, there is sound, but I mean, like the artist doesn't need it, you know? Oh, I, I, that's one place I would disagree with you severely. Yeah. I'll tell you why. Yeah. There were cues in the sound. 
there were specific cues that are only if they can hear them. And well, I I will say that the artist gets it. Oh, he does. But do they on. use it or not? Well, I, it's like my I, my room right now. I don't necessarily have my audio playing that often. Sure. Um, it's only when I need it. But it, I hope you send it. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do know. I that question was specific to him and Robert and Omar are VFX editors because I walk in and they're usually either on a Zoom talking back and forth about the files and what has to go out. But I walk into Dylan's Bay or Carlos and I know Gluck and Camp, like the, the guys that really got to do a lot of the juicy stuff on, on this season, they for sure, um, in part too, because I know and we're going to talk to the sound team, but how intentional, not just the score and the soundtrack, but the sound design that goes into this. Um, even when we talked with Steve and Jeff, very clear, very intentional about an Everett, just there is a sound associated with certain visual effects. And I think it was, um, I forget his name, one of the sparrows who has the, the, the mush face. Yeah. Alfonso. Yeah. When like part of his face falls off when and part it's, of his face was falling off, I was like, oh God, I heard that. Oh. And it absolutely makes you believe it all the more. I mean, the visuals can be incredible no matter what, but sound, that's why you have five senses. I saw it, I heard it. Some ways I'm sure I could even smell it, but you know, <laughs> that was that was a really incredible effect. So for you, what is maybe some of the like biggest pieces that you saw like as they come in and then what they become how often is that like a major change for you? Having done it for three years, I'm pretty much, I know what it's going to look like. I know what everything sounds like at this point. So my brain just fixes it. It's like, it's a kind of an automatic, oh, this is going to happen here. This will happen here. That'll look, and this is the sound. Um, things that surprised me, um, but it's a different show. I probably shouldn't talk about it, but I was on Altered Carbon with Everett. And we had this huge city and I knew that the trains were going and other things were happening, but I never heard them because we didn't, you know, the, the, you only have so many tracks and you only have so much time as an editor. I temped all this stuff out. So we had trains going down the tubes and it was crazy when they delivered them. I never really noticed them. They were just all background. It was world building, but they put some sound in there and you hear that sound of that train going by and not a big sound, but you go, Oh, I missed that train. I've never seen that train before because I'm focused on the story, which I should be, but the world is still going by. A good example of what you're talking about is Sloan's hands, gravity power. Sloan's hands was only going to be a sound. It was only going to affect certain, you know, you're only going to see the effect of gravity. She wasn't going to have hands. And all of us are looking at it going, we need to do something with her. And everybody has something, but we don't, we don't want the same glowing hands that, that Klaus has. We don't want the same glowing hands that Five builds up to or Vanya builds up to because they're all diff slightly different powers. They all come from the same origin, but they have to be unique because they work on different principles. So Sloan took a little while to build a different, completely different look. Um, 
some of that happened in the editing room. And then some of it was just dialing it in with the vendor. And um, that's the bigger, you know, trying to communicate to the vendor. Yeah, this works, but there's something missing and we don't know what it is. Um, and that's where people like Everett just shine. I say this of Everett and I mean it in the kindest way possible. He's like a 14 year old kid in that he has that pure love of what he does. That's kind of what I see in Everett is he's got the best part of that. He's still in awe of what is there. And because of that, he brings that awe to all of us. I think that is a, a very appropriate way of putting it. Uh, I gushed over Everett for everything that he did in Pan's Labyrinth, which to me is one of the best VFX feats I've ever seen. And probably why he gets along so well with Dylan Shadinsky, because one of my favorite stories about Dylan is that, you know, he missed the window for special effects, but why he's in visual effects is literally because of the frying eggs on the counter in Ghostbusters. He was like, that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, but you bring up a really good topic that I wanted to chat about, which is notes, because that is very different for all of you. And Mr. Peffley, I'd love to start with you because you're actually dealing with notes for the team, notes coming back from our team onto the vendor, but then also managing all of that. How is that workflow? Like you're literally getting information in out from two different sides. Totally. It, it's, it's managing chefs in a kitchen. I think, um, I, I think there's definitely what the client has to say, um, that has a lot of weight and that's passed along to the artist. Um, but then in the QC process as well, like Dylan and I will go back and forth on notes. And then um, that's all organized. We use, um, you. we were talking about it earlier, F-Track um, to just organize all of our notes and catalog everything um, so that nothing is missed. And there's also, there's typically a flat version that we send or we'll send like alts of like a different variation. You know, maybe there's like a TV comp and we want like flickering on a, or no flickering and we'll give both versions just to you know have an idea um i know we did a lot of portals and blinks that um are new conceptualized powers and stuff and so it's always just this back and forth you know communicating um who's happy with with the effect so then what is that experience like for for you tom on on those calls are you tweaking while it's happening? Are you? No, my job typically is to just show the shots. I try to put markers in and try to put notes in. I try to listen, but it's better to, in my opinion, to have the, the visual effects people who are actually the vendors on the call. There's no, well, I'm interpreting this from the, from the executive producer to the VFX supervisor to Tom to Joe, to, from Joe to, you know, all of these other people. And it, so it's, it's like, it could become telephone if you're not real careful, you know, where somebody says, oh, I'd like it to be just this really soft blue. And next thing you know, it's like, uh, it's like, uh, 
aquamarine because somebody said, well, it's a light blue. Well, how light? Well, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like that. And they're asking questions that weren't asked initially. Right. So now you have to go back to the, the, the it comes back and somebody's like, why is that thing green? We wanted it blue. And, and you guys are like, you know, as the vendor will go, that was the note we got. And it's like, well, we don't know where that note came from. Um, doesn't happen that often. If you're on a good crew, your notes get through um, as in the purest form that they can. Notes are the most important part of getting finished, good finished shots. And it's also one of the more difficult parts of doing it. We are pretty fortunate here. We are incredibly thankful for both the imprint that Mr. Suzuki left on us and the shoes that Mr. Peffley came to fill and the wonderful encouragements that we get from you, Mr. Damari. So with that gentlemen, unless you got anything that I missed or a special shout out to your favorite scene in season three, I think that is this episode of the drop, but old Tom looked like you had something. Well, um, Everett taught me something, which is he always says team. And he always thinks team. And that's the way he, his, 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 he works. What's the most difficult scene? I would probably say the final fight in episode 10. I think the whole fight all the way to the um, reconstruction, I'll put it that way, because I'm not going to totally um, spill it. Uh, Cheeky spoilers, not full spoilers. Yeah. Uh, I think that was like, um, a good 20 something minutes of almost all visual effects. And I, uh, you know, and I think also the opener in season uh, of episode one, you know, through the actual fight and everything. Footloose was fun, but the actual fight was like its own thing. And I will say that uh, one of the highlights was. <laughs> We we needed we needed a, a 3D prop, and Tom used his iPhone to light our scan. It. Oh. <laughs> uh, and and that was that was I mean that was a cool mesh of technology and creativity. We just needed something. We actually didn't have a, a, a scan of it, and so he had just gotten the newest iPhone and would just <laughs> scan the thing. And, and, you know, in five minutes, we had a full 3D uh, prop, which is really cool. So the future is exciting. Mr. Peffley, you can't leave us hanging. You're the last yeah, one. You I, well, so I am still binging. So I appreciate the, the barrier of, you know, not telling all the spoilers. I, I appreciate it, Tom. I will say seeing Victor kick all the sparrows butt and throw them all back was an awesome moment. And I like jump with joy and I was just like, yeah. So I'm excited to see, see more, but uh, it's, it's been rough. And that started with you guys as previous. Yeah. And I forget, I don't think we touched Harland at all. And I'm not gonna ruin anything because I don't think Harland is there yet in the first two, but uh, just touching back really quick on sound. Thank God he's the only one with that significant of the sound for his power. That I was like, I don't know if I can do this much longer. I don't think I can do this much longer. 
It's very serious and very, very cool. But um, gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough for carving out the time. I know each and every one of you has a very dense schedule and I don't take it lightly that you chose to spend an hour and 15 with me today and teaching uh, those of your both peers and those who hope to learn from you more about VFX editorial and the insane, maniacal, very proud, very hungry fans of the Umbrella Academy. I'm excited that they get to learn more about this and you. So thank you again. I appreciate you so much. Thanks. We'll see you yeah. again soon. Great. Thanks, Nancy.